This reading, this gospel reading, is from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And I know you'll know this story, but I invite you to open your ears to hear it again for the first time. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them. And he cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled They took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate there were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Here ends the reading. Especially in times like these, it's easy to get into what we would call scarcity thinking. Scarcity thinking is that there isn't enough And there isn't enough for everyone. And so I've got to keep mine or get mine. And I've got to protect it. And I've got to hoard it. And I've got to grasp onto it in order to be safe, in order to be secure. And what scarcity thinking often does is it it leads to that kind of behavior. It It leads to people trying to build up these huge kingdoms, either in their bank accounts or in their homes or or whatever, because they're so worried about not having enough that that what they have is too meager to sustain them. Scarcity thinking is really me thinking. Me and mine thinking. And it's probably pretty rampant right now, because for many people, they are, things feel very, very scarce. Jobs may be scarce, food may be scarce, money may be scarce, depending on if they are employed or not. And especially now, as as some things are changing with our government in terms of the, the benefits that people have been getting who've been unemployed, and as people now are trying to figure out, well, what are they gonna do, and how are we gonna live? People are scared, and scared people often think with scarcity thinking. It's me kind of thinking. And it's not saying that we shouldn't look to take care of ourselves and take care of our families. But when it gets too rampant, it causes us to pull back and withdraw from things, to to believe that what we have is never enough. And I wonder in this passage, if just for a moment there was a little twist on scarcity thinking for Jesus. Because as we move into the scripture passage, it says, now when Jesus heard this, and anytime you jump into a scripture passage and you have something like that, you want to find out what, 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 what's this. Well, Jesus just found out that his cousin, John the baptizer, had had his head removed from his body. 
He was, he was murdered. He was killed by the powers that be. His head was served up on a platter, and Jesus just heard about it, the death of his cousin, the death of John the baptizer. And so it says, when he heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. He had just lost someone who had played a pretty pivotal role in his life and baptized him, had been a prophet. Uh, Jesus said that he was Elijah come again to proclaim that the Messiah was coming. I mean, this was an important person. And so, I mean, I can just imagine the feeling that he might be having. Well, is it, if he knew, right, if like we believe that he knew he was headed for the cross at some point, was he thinking, oh, this is a lot closer now? He withdrew by himself. I just wonder, and again, this is total speculation. Was he having scarcity thinking? Was he worried about himself? Well, according to this passage, he didn't have much time to worry about himself because the people followed him. Maybe they'd heard about John the baptizer and they were thinking, well, now that he's out of the way, he's not the Messiah. This Jesus, this one who's been healing and teaching, maybe he is the one. And so all these people, these thousands of people, as it's reported here, followed him and they found him in this deserted place. And it says he had compassion on them. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I saw thousands of people having great need in front of me, I probably would be thinking about myself. How am I supposed to help these people? When we're faced with overwhelming need, it can be overwhelming to us. And we think, well, what can I do? What, what can I do with the resources I have? Here, here's all this need. I mean, man, I don't know about you, but you, if you see ads on television, you see starving children somewhere whether it's here in America or somewhere else. You see children who have cancer who are fighting that fight, or you see this or that. It can be overwhelming, the need that is there. And so I, I wonder, you know, as Jesus looked, did, 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 he, did he for a moment, but it says, no, he had compassion for them. And, and again, there's this great Greek word that, that talks about it. It's basically his guts were moved. He's moved in his inward parts for these people. He has this gut feeling for them. And in so many places as we've read this, this time, he had compassion for these people and it moves him and he begins to cure the sick. And of course the disciples then must have found him at some point and they were with him and it comes to evening and of course the disciples are the pragmatists, right? Hey, there's all these people here. We, they gotta have some food, you know? And Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. And they're like, well, we don't have anything. We have nothing. Well, that's not true. They had five loaves and two fish. But what they saw, what they saw is what they had was nothing. I don't know if you ever get in the, into that kind of thinking, right? Like, man, I, what, I, I've got this, I've got this, but man, it's nothing. Just the other day, I was, I was with a friend and, and he, he said, yeah, I was looking at my spreadsheets and my expenses and all this. And he said, man, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little more money, I could do this, right? I, I know none of us in this room, I know none of, none of you out there have ever thought that. <laughs> if, I, if I could just get that next raise, right? If I could just get that, if we could just put away five, if we could, then it would be enough. 
Well, there's a famous, and I think it might have been Carnegie, who was asked, how much is enough? And he said, the next dollar. Right? Well, they said they had nothing. And they probably really, in a sense, five loaves and two fish and 5,000 men plus women and children, that's, it feels like at least next to nothing, right? Well, there's a writer, and I, I got to quote him, Rolf Jacobson, who, who said this, next to nothing is God's favorite thing to work with. Next to nothing is God's favorite thing to work with. I just love that. Just love that. And so, of course, we know that he, Jesus took what they had. And what I love here is he didn't go abracadabra. He looked up to God, his father, and he gave thanks to God for what had been given. And then he blessed it and then he broke it. And then it was more than enough. Twelve baskets came back of leftovers. And I'm not going to talk about the miracle itself and you know, prognosticate about, about how all that happened. But just to receive the gift of that and to think about it, again, a little bit metaphorically, I want to think about this church. This church was founded over about 131 years ago by a group of people that were a mission Sunday school class from First Presbyterian Church right here in town. We're a, we're a daughter of that congregation. And this church had some real struggles. It was, it was incorporated with a couple of elders and about 20 members, I think. And then a few years later, and we just discovered this, I think, last year, was they actually disbanded. They disbanded the church. But then, not long after that, they reformed and then began to move forward. In the early 1900s, they were served by a part-time pastor who was also a professor at Union Theological Seminary, and, and he wrote this very poignant, his last letter to them. He'd served them for 10 years, and he basically said, you can either devolve into a social club or you can be basically ministers of the gospel, and you can reach out into the community with an outstretched hand and a warm embrace, and you can serve this community, or you can just be a social club. I think those are fights that churches still have today about, well, are we just for us and we're just a nice little club and we like each other or are, or are we to serve others in that? And yes, the congregation grew and they built this, this is again, as I've talked about, this is the fifth sanctuary that this congregation has built in the city and three of them still exist right? And, and so all of these, this great history, this church on the move and we've been here since then and then and when I got here in 2002, when I arrived on the scene, I was told in no uncertain terms that we had five years. We had five years. That's how much money we had to be able to function. This little congregation wasn't going to make it. Well, I think it's 2020. That was 18 years ago. And this meager offering of a congregation. Not only have we been faithful in giving and not only have we been faithful in mission and ministry, in these last three years, we have really had opportunities that God has placed before us that we've said yes to where our impact has just been expanded. Part of that, part of that impact was expanded when we made the, the difficult choice, and it was a difficult choice. There were many people who said, I don't know if we should try to raise the money to renovate that sanctuary. Yes, we need to do it, but I don't know. And Jim and Beth Elliott came on as the leaders for that campaign because they said, yes, we can. 
And we did. We raised almost $500,000. And now, now we look at how far we've come and we come to this place and we know that there are things that we need to do now. We want to have impact. There is great need around us. And we've doubled down with our ministry partners here in the recovery community, with our AFRAM family, with Reestablished Richmond, and with Richmond Prep. We have doubled down with those folks and linked arms with them in new ways to help support them and minister alongside of them in new ways. And we had the opportunity, because we did the first part of the renovation and the first part of this capital campaign, to do what we're doing right now, to live stream these services. And we are having, and many of you I see as on, on your Facebook, you know, Virginia Beach and Abingdon and Pennsylvania, and I know we've got people in Wyoming, and I know we've got people in Florida, and I know we've got people in California who are gathering with us in worship. We have people who haven't been able to worship with us, who live in retirement communities. They, they aren't able to drive, they aren't, and they aren't able to leave their retirement communities now, and they're able to worship with us every Sunday now because of this live streaming. And so as we take this step and take our offerings to, one, pay off the debt for this building because that, that debt, we have to service that every single month. And the sooner we can pay that off, the sooner that frees up money out of our, out of our annual offerings to be able to continue to bless this community, to take those offerings and continue to expand the impact that God wants us to have. And two, we're going to purchase and have installed the live streaming equipment because we believe that this ministry expands our impact in a way that we don't ever, ever want to stop. And it's going to give us the opportunity to do more things like we're doing this afternoon with this organ concert. That we can do something here and, and when and if we're able to be in person, we can also live stream those things so people from around the country can be here or people who are sick who can't come that day can be here. People can worship with us. It's a great and exciting time. Needs are great all around us. But we are choosing to trust in what God has already given us so that God will take our offerings and make it more than enough for what we need in order to expand the impact. And that kind of thinking is sharing thinking, not scarcity thinking, and sharing thinking is we thinking. What can we do together? God is the one who provides what is necessary and when we enter into that gospel, into that good news, and we give of our meager offering, our next to nothing, God loves that and that's God's favorite thing to work with. And so we begin to see, not with scarcity, but with opportunity. We begin to stop hoarding, stop grasping, and we begin to hope, and we begin to give generously, and we begin to live incredibly grateful lives as we receive from God and as we share with others. And when we do that, we are able to do more than we could ever imagine. That is the gift that God gives us and invites us into now and we give thanks and praise to God for it. Amen.